Judy Collins has thrilled audiences worldwide with her unique blend of interpretive folk songs and contemporary things. She's been in the business for over 40 years. She's sung the songs of Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, and of course uh, the song she sang um, uh, Send in the Clowns was the song of the year at the 1975 Grammy Awards. Judy Collins, welcome to my broadcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm just wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're tickled to be talking with you. Uh, how did you first get involved in music? Who was who it that gave you a, uh, a leaning towards uh, a love for music? Well, I was raised in a family where music was our bread and butter as well as our pleasure. My father had a radio show all my life, all, oh. all my experience of him for 30 years, and started out in the golden age of radio in 1937 in Seattle. And I was born in 39 into this family of music and uh, always meeting people who would sing and play and so I started singing when I was about two and a half or three and I've never stopped. No, you got your first recording contract at age 22, right? Yep, I certainly did and I started singing in clubs when I was 19 but I had been performing and singing and I was a pianist as well. I played Mozart with a symphony at 13 and sang on the radio and the school show and won a contest at 16. So I was always making music. How did you come by Joni Mitchell's song, Both Sides Now, which became, you, you turned into a classic? I was uh, sound asleep in 1967, and <clears throat> I got a phone call from my friend Al Cooper, who was the great organ person who played the organ on uh, Bringing It All Back Home, all the Dylan songs at that time. And he started the Blues Project, and he was a great, great musician. He is. And he called me up and said, it was about 3 in the morning, and he called me and he said, I've got this singer here, and I just she just sang me a song, and I've got to have her sing it for you. So it was 3 in the morning, she sang me the song. The next day I went to see her, and I recorded it, I think, sometime that week. And, of course, it went on to become a classic. How about the song that was a, it was sort of like a late bloomer, but it's become so solid, the song Send in the Clowns, which became the song of the year in 1975. What a classic. It is a classic. Well, I discovered it after it had been out and recorded by about 200 people. Huh. And I said, well, I don't care. I've got to do it. So, yeah, it was a late bloomer. And how do you no, like that? I fell in love with it. And how was it that your your rendition just cut through and went to the top of the charts, you know? I have a theory about that, and I'll tell you what it is. First of all, it was the right time, the right place. Um, I fell in love with the song. I was doing the album for Elektra. I had a very, very strong hold on Elektra. I was up there in the charts. I had been, I was already in a good place as far as promotion and caring and interest and and plugging the records, etc. I had a big marketing team behind me. <clears throat> but I have a theory. I've heard a lot of recordings of Sending the Clowns, but in including the Sinatra recording, nobody used the English horn introduction that, that was in the cast recording. Mm -hmm. And because I went straight to Jonathan Tunick, and I would have done it anyway myself because it is the most gorgeous sound, I think it's because the orchestration was so true to what Sondheim was doing. I, I think that had a lot to do. And it suited my voice. It was right for me. 
it was the kind of song you look for and look for and look for. And in my case, it just landed in my lap. Yeah, but also, I, I heard it once and said, oh, that's for me. Yeah, but also you, instead of performing it, maybe there's a difference that you lived it. I mean, you when you're when you're there singing it, you're right there living that moment. Well, I try to do that with everything I sing, and I think that if I don't succeed, it's because I either have a cold that night or <laughs> there's been a storm or something. Because that's all I do is try to live within the song. How about? You took an a cappella version of um, Amazing Grace and went to the top of the charts, a huge success. <laughs> I know, it's funny. I knew that song for years, of course I did it. And uh, one night <clears throat> I was at an encounter group here. I was, I did all, I've done all kinds of therapy, as we all do. And uh, I was in this encounter group, and one of the guys said, the guy who was my producer at the time, said, I think you better sing a song because everybody's at each other's throats and we're all kind of, you know, gnashing our teeth and criticizing one another. So at the end of the session, I, I said, well, why don't we all sing Amazing Grace, which we did, and it, it accomplished what it was meant to accomplish, which was everybody walked away smiling and peace was restored. And the next day, my producer called me and said, we've got to record that song, and the, next, the rest is history. You've had the privilege of working with being one of the great artists of this generation and working with other great artists. Do you mind if I broach some names and then you can just tell me whatever comes to your head? Sure. Okay. Woody Guthrie. Well, I love Woody Guthrie, but I never met him because by the time I got to New York, and I was managed by Harold Leventhal, who managed the Weavers and manages Woody's estate and, and, uh, Marjorie Guthrie was my friend. Now, I knew Marjorie very well. Marjorie was wonderful, and she worked with Harold, and she, after, particularly after Woody's death in the 60s, she, uh, she had a lot to do with starting the foundation um, to research uh, a cure for Huntington's disease. They used to call it Huntington's chorea whatever that means, but they call it Huntington's disease now. And it's a similar disease to these other things like MS and um, Parkinson's. But she and I were always very, very friendly. I was crazy about her. And, of course, Arlo I adore. Woody, however, was in the hospital, so I never was able to really see him because he was much too sick. I think Dylan went out there to see him once or twice, but uh, it was... I used to say to Harold, could I go see him? And he said, you know, he's just, he's too sick. But I certainly adore his songs, just adore them. And I, I know his kids, you know, I love Arlo and, and uh, Nora, who runs, who runs the Woody Guthrie Foundation in the office here in New York. Nora's a real special gal. So I've had a lot to do with, with Woody's children. How about, how about now I met Pete Seeger when I was getting gas over in, uh, I think it was Poughkeepsie, New York one time. Have you met Pete, and what do you think of Pete? Well, I love Pete. Pete and I have been have known each other very well through the years because, again, I was managed by Harold Leventhal for 10 years, and Harold always managed Pete's career and the Weaver's career and Woody Guthrie's career and Arlo's career, and for 10 years, my career. So I had a lot of, a lot of commerce with Pete, a lot of talks, a lot of concerts, uh, shared stages. Uh, 
we did the the big fundraiser for Woody Guthrie in 1969, and there's a big photograph with me and Dylan and Pete Seeger and Odetta and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Tom Paxton and a whole bunch of us. Robert Ryan was on that program, too. So I've had a lot of time with Pete. I just watched that wonderful inter- that wonderful piece about him that Jim Brown did, that life story on American Masters. Just wonderful. Yeah, I mean... He's an amazing uh, man. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be more popular than ever. It's amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you also, okay, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Bob Dylan. I've sort of been a, an extreme admirer of Bob Dylan from afar. Can you give us an insight into his true character? Well, I, I just adore him. You know, I met him I met him in the early 60s, probably in Colorado in 59. He says that he came to hear me in Central City and sat at my feet. Um, then in New York, of course, we were thrown together at Gertie's Folk City, and once again, had a lot of mutual friends. I saw a lot of them. I went to every concert he gave. I, I started recording him in 1963. I think Masters of War was the first song that I recorded of his. Uh, he wrote a song for me called uh, Keep It With Mine, which he talks about in his uh, bootleg tape uh, collection. Now he's got my name in a new song, and I was really kind of bowled over about this because... I didn't know anything about it, and somebody emailed me from England with the lyric of this new song, and uh, there I am in black and white, my full name on in this song. It's not just Maggie's Farm, it's Judy Collins being mentioned in a Dylan song. So it blew my mind. Where is it here? I've got the... Uh, Lyric up here, wait a minute, Bob Dylan. So I don't know. I don't even know what the name of this song is, believe it or not. But it was written by two writers. Bob, the Bob Dylan song. What the heck is the name of it? What's it called? Uh, it's called. I think it's called Miss Alice. Um, Miss Al- Mr. Alice doesn't live here. No, no more. Is what it's called. Judy Collins went downstairs with a roll of film. So there I am, immortalized in a Dylan album. <laughs> Judy short. Collins went down there to get a roll of film? Yeah. <laughs> but I have recorded dozens of his songs, and the, the album that I did in the 90s, uh, Judy Sings uh, Dylan Just Like a Woman, it was it's always a thrill. I, I just I adore him. Yeah, the guy's a, simply a genius at writing. How about Leonard Cohen? There's another genius. Leonard, I had the privilege of discovering. He was brought to me by a woman who worked for Warner's, a friend of mine named Mary Martin, kept saying to me in 64 and 65 and 66, she would say, listen, I love this guy. He's in Montreal or Toronto, and he's a published poet, and he's written a couple of novels, and he wants to come down here and play a song for you because he wants to know if he's really a songwriter. So... He came to New York, he came to visit me at my home, and he sat down and he said, um, he said, I can't play and I can't sing and I don't know if this is a song. And then he played me Suzanne. Oh, my. And, uh... For somebody that yeah, doesn't... Yeah, again, I was in the middle of recording an album. Yeah. Called In My Life. It was probably my sixth, my sixth album. And, uh... It was. I recorded two of his songs on that album, and then usually two on every album for another fifteen or twenty years. And I also did a, 
uh, an album of, of of Leonard songs of maybe in 2003, which is on Rhino. It's either on Rhino or Electra, I guess. And uh, primarily, I didn't put it on my label, which I should have done had I really been thinking. Um, but I wanted to recapture all of those great orchestrations that we had done, those arrangements that we'd done when I was recording for Electra in the years when I was doing a lot of Leonard Cohen. And uh, I I wanted to, and I, so I used the original recordings in, I think, 10 of the songs, and then I did three that were new recordings from more later work. Anyway, yeah, I love them. Yeah, another great artist. Let's take a quick little break and then come back because then I want to broach a subject. I was on the way to do this interview today, and of course, I lost my brother on nine one one, and my mother brought up the fact that you lost a son to suicide. And maybe somebody out there is listening, or maybe somebody knows someone who should be listening to this broadcast. When we come back, uh, we're going to get into the subject of her book, Sanity and Grace, and her journey from from pain to survival following the suicide of her son. I'm talking with Judy Collins, uh, the singer, the artist, when we return uh, to talk about sanity and grace. I'm Rhett Palmer. Keep it right here. Judy Collins has thrilled audiences worldwide with her unique blend of interpretive folk songs and contemporary themes. And yes, I just read that. But let me tell you, folks, she's had a profound influence on my life back in the 60s. Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, uh, Amazing Grace, which was a, a tremendous. Who can take Amazing Grace and do it a cappella and make it a number one hit? Judy Collins can. Uh, song of the Year, 1975, the song that haunts all of us somewhere inside our souls, Send in the Clowns, was some by over 200 other people, written by Stephen Soundheim, but it didn't become a smash hit until the elegant and eloquent Judy Collins uh, uh, didn't just sing it, she just she lived it, she performed it, and it's an honor to have you on my broadcast, Judy. Well, thank you so much, and I'm so glad to be with you today. Yeah, now we got to... We gotta, we got to go to that place to help others, and I, you know, I didn't even know if I should broach the subject today with you, but because I discussed it with my mom, having lost my brother on nine one one, and then after after googling googling you, and and then coming remembering that you had lost a son to um, to suicide, and you wrote the book Sanity and Grace, uh, you wrote it was as though time stopped, and the clock stopped, and I stepped into the gap. Uh, t- would you please? Uh, I know it's it's hard to go back there, but somebody out there may need your your you know elegantly written testimony of, of being a survivor. Well, it's for, you know it's the worst thing that can happen to a mother, I think. Um, and ha- these losses are so devastating, and I'm sure that the loss of your brother for you yourself and for your family it turns your world upside down. And there wasn't very much help for me. This was in 1992. And we were all in shock. And, uh, you know, I've had my experience with suicide. I, I attempted suicide as a teenager at 14. So mm-hmm. I am one of, uh, what do they call them, Jonas children who've come back from the belly of the whale. And he wasn't so lucky. And uh, knowing what I know now, I knew, I know that I had to to write about it and to go through that pain because I've I've written memoirs for many many years and it was natural i think that i would finally write write a book about suicide and then the follow-up book which i wrote two years ago called uh, the seven t's about surviving catastrophic loss i think that's maybe even a more important 
book than the suicide book, although it does focus on on suicide, but it adds in the other kinds of losses that can be catastrophic losses. What are the seven T's? Suicide, oh, the seven T's um, are trust and truth and and uh, therapy and triumph and uh, treating and all the things that we need to do to get through a day at a time. I was, when I was touring with the book about about suicide, which I called Sanity and Grace, when I was talking about it, I said to myself, I think we need to have a little practical guide of just the things you do in a day. You get up and you try to face the day, but are there things you can do which will help you? So the seven T's is a, is a list and a and um, sort of a meditation upon those things which have been most helpful. Uh, l- let me ask you this. Um, uh, I got so many things I want to ask you. When uh, we have the number one killer of children, of teenagers in Florida is in fact suicide. Yeah. It's the third killer in the United States. Through this process, though, have you learned anything? What can we do if there's somebody out there? I remember I had a friend of mine. We were we all used to go out at the age of 20. We'd have beers, and next week they said, well, uh, Pete's gone. What happened mm-hmm. to Pete? Well, Pete, uh, yeah. Pete had uh, latent feelings, I guess they said, of homosexuality, and so he killed himself. And, mm-hmm. hey, you know, for that Pete that's out there now, we want everybody listening to Stay alive, and we need you. But how do we save these young lives? Yeah, how do we do that? It's a difficult question. I I don't know very much about prevention. What I know about is preventing my own suicide. Yeah, and that's been most of the pe- most people who suffer the loss from a catastrophic loss or a suicide are in danger themselves, particularly suicide survivors. So that's an area I know more about. Really? Although, as a teenager, I I can't tell you. I don't know where I would have gone with all that information that was driving me crazy. I couldn't talk to my parents. I, I couldn't talk to my preacher. I couldn't talk to my teachers. Why? And I couldn't talk to my friends. Why? In the 50s, when this happened, you didn't do that. Uh-huh. Now, we're more enlightened. There are lots of aspects. There are a lot of possibilities here. And I think the most important thing about this is educating kids, as well as adults, that the the suicide ideology, the suicidology, they call it, the thoughts about suicide are a serious mental problem, but they can be helped by talking about them. Just by talking about them is enough to open up the idea that, well, let's see what happens tomorrow. You know, things may look different around tomorrow. Uh, and if there are serious mental health pro- pro- problems, which of course there can be in suicide, um, they may be involve depression, treating depression. They may involve uh, physical and mental health, certainly physical health. So a lot of what I talk about when I talk about the immediate need to to survive a suicide and also to prevent one's own falling into that dark pit is to find the proper kind of therapy to begin exercising to begin meditating i believe that suicide is a spiritual issue and Mm. that there is a great element in our lives that needs to be addressed spiritually well what what, expound on that i don't understand what you mean by that by spirituality yeah well, you know, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell, and spirituality is for those who've already been there. 
yeah. I guess that's really the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, any kind of spiritual help that can take you out of your own problems and let you reach for things that can heal you outside yourself and inside yourself. But it's a matter of being in touch with forces that could be healing to you, whether you believe you want to go to church and hear some music or whether you want to read your favorite spiritual book or whether you want to go from, for some spiritual counseling. Yeah. I, it's I'm... helpful. Also, there's another thing people don't talk about a lot, which I've learned a lot because alcoholism is in my family. Alcoholism is a great contributor to suicide. Alcoholism, drug addiction, both. So we don't hear a lot about that, but we, we should be aware that if someone is in a state of, of alcoholic, uh, uh, the dominance of alcohol or a drug addiction in their in their lives, they are much more prone to take their lives than most of the rest of us. I know. We want to treat that illness. And as a result, we'll, of course, treat the, uh, the suicide uh, ideology in many cases. It's so hard when sometimes uh, I'm not one that's prone to depression, but I know one time I was supposed to have an interview with uh, Mike Wallace at his home up on Martha's Vineyard. And then at the last moment, uh, CBS had canceled it. Well, I did end up getting the interview because God intervened miraculously. I went into a movie theater 48 hours later, and he walked in and there sat right was. in front of me. <laughs> but, but the point is, that I remember the depression going down my feet and out, and I couldn't control it. I suddenly has, was so upset, but I know there's, and I know this sounds flippant, flip to somebody who might be out there. Maybe you're in the throes of heartbreak, or, or like you lost your son, or I lost my brother on 911, or I lost my dad in a car accident. You know, it, somewhere, I forget, it's the Old Testament where it says, you know, give unto others, and oh, your, yeah. your light will rise out of the darkness like the oh, noonday yeah. sun. Go, go to the hospital and visit a child that has cancer or something. Absolutely. You know? Give service. Service is the answer to a lot of these questions and problems. Yeah. Because we get so involved, and you know, we become, we're staring at our navels, we're staring at our problems, which is understandable, but the solution is often to turn towards another who needs help. That's why writing the book for me was so important, because it helped me. I wrote the book, and then I went out and started to talk to people, and they, they told me their stories. They told me what was going on with them, how they were coping what happened, the details of the, of the death of their loved one, how they got over it, how they feel, how they're treating their depression, you know, what are they doing, um, what kinds of steps are they taking in their, in their healing. I think the important thing is to talk about these things. I, I've always believed that discussion, talk, it's not only good for your mood, it's good for your brain cells. You know that people who talk with one another, who have conversations, have less of a chance of of, of, uh, of suffering from Alzheimer's? No, I didn't know that. Yeah? So can we... Well, okay, so... Because, you know, secrets will kill you. And they'll kill you without you being able to see them because they're silent. They're doing damage in your body and on your mind without you being avail available to watch. That's why they're called secrets. Well, you know, we've all been through, like, we go through a heartbreak, and, and, you, and you feel, I don't know what, what, how you, what your personal experience was, but I remember one time when my heart was broken, I literally felt icy cold and felt yeah. an ache in the center of my chest. Now, when I finally ran into someone else who said, oh, I've been on that iceberg, suddenly it's like, oh, really? You mean yeah. someone else has been here? Yeah, you're not the only person on the iceberg. Yeah. It's very important to find out that other people have gone through the same things and survived them. 
you know, and it's funny because I mean, I don't mean funny in a funny way. I mean, like you, you, you made both sides now so famous. It's a song that ministered to me as a, as a young fourteen year old hitchhiking out to Woodstock was when you sang, uh, you know, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, and it's love's it illusion. That year, I recall. That's right. It was a big hit that year. I, but 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 those songs minister that hey, there's somebody else that's been here, or your or, or the song you made famous, uh, send in the clowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people can relate. You know, we, we've been there. Send in the clowns, man, because we've all played good, the fool. It's a good word, which I, ha- which I don't think about using, but it is a ministry, absolutely. Yeah. It is when we come to these places in our lives where we have to write about them or sing about them or paint about them. It's a ministry. It's a minister to, a, to others by, by doing that. Also to ourselves, of course, but it goes out to others. Well, listen, I know you're very busy, and you've touched my heart today, but your your whole life has touched my life as well as millions and millions of other people. I don't know. How, I'll just ask you this final question. How does that feel to know that you've literally invested into the hearts and minds of, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people throughout the world? Well, it's a privilege. It's a total privilege. Yeah. It is a privilege, isn't it? Yeah. Well... Keep on ministering. Keep on serving others. God bless you, Judy Collins. Thank you so much, oh. and God bless you. You take good care. Now, listen, the book Sanity and Grace and the Seven T's for my listeners. How can, Now, they can always Google Judy Collins, but is there a specific site they can go to to order your books? Amazon will do. Amazon will do. Okay, so the title of the book is Sanity and Grace, and the seven one is, is the seven T's, correct? That's it. Thank you, Judy Collins. You're I'm so Rhett Palmer. Uh, Judy Collins, yes, and now a little bit of her music for you. Keep it right here. I'm Red Palmer. <laughs> 